All right, so if you have your Bibles, turn to uh, the book of Ephesians as we continue our, in this series on winning your war. I hope you picked up an outline as you uh, made your way in this morning. We are going to be looking at uh, several different passages today as we talk about um, dressing for success, the shield of faith. What is the shield of faith? What does that mean? What does it look like? And how do we utilize that when we are engaging in warfare against our enemy who is Satan? So um, there are four facts I hope that you've picked up on thus far in this series in which we've been in. The first one is this, is that you need to understand that God has objectively defeated Satan and his agenda, right? So you're not fighting for victory, you're literally fighting from victory. You already stand victorious by virtue of the fact that you're in Christ and he is in you. Now you're simply learning how to leverage the victory that Jesus has already won on your behalf and appropriate that into your own life day in and day out. I mean, think about this. God has already delivered you from sin's penalty. Remember, the wages of sin is death, eternal spiritual, eternal death from, from uh, eternal separation from God. He's, you're already in, right? So you're in heaven. You're in Christ. Therefore, you're already in the heavenlies. And when you die, you draw your last breath. You're going to be in heaven with with uh, Jesus, he's already delivered you from the power of sin, which is what spiritual warfare is all about, and ultimately he'll deliver you from the presence of sin, which is the eternal home that Jesus has gone to prepare for us, that where he is, we might be there with him also. So again, we're just learning to leverage the Christ, Christ victory in this hand-to-hand combat that we have with our enemy. Here's the second fact, uh, is that all believers have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Colossians 1.13 tells us that. Therefore, you are already a kingdom citizen. That means all the rights, the privileges, and the authority of Christ himself is at your disposal as a kingdom citizen. So we want to leverage those rights and those author- that authority and those privileges on our behalf. Number three, the spiritual battle we fight involves a responsibility on our part, though, to put on the armor of God. God has provided us with this armor that Paul gives to us, a description here in Ephesians chapter 6, but it's my responsibility to put it on. It's my responsibility to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit. I have to take those up to go on the offensive in this war in which I'm engaged. Now, we've already talked about three um, of the pieces of the armor, the belt of truth. Remember, that has to do with your mind. And so your mind has been bombarded by the lies of the enemy, and and that has formulated the thought patterns of your life. And so a lie cannot stand against the truth, and where we find the truth is in the Word of God. Although, according to George Barner's research group, who's done a massive research on Americans and the Bible, how much faith and trust are they willing to put in God's Word? And it is dismal. At best, I'll share more of that when we talk about taking up the sword of the spirit. But just needless to say, most Christians in America are redefining their beliefs not based on the word of God, but based on secular values. And it is infiltrated into the church, into the lives of God's people. And so their worldview is is possessed by most um, mainline church attenders revolving around the concept of individuals 
are the ones who determine what is truth and what is moral, not the word of God, that there is no objective, transcendent purpose in life, that you're just, you know, buying, buying into the, more of the evolution process, you're a random act of chance, and so you kind of live things out. And here's another one, is that the Christian practices of confessing sin, praying, and reading the Bible, most American Christians do not believe that is important to one's faith any longer. And we wonder why Christians are living defeated, filled with fear, worry, anxiety, all these things, these darts that arrows, flaming arrows, Satan is sending our way, keeping us beat down, and why the Christian church in good old America is year after year in steep decline. Because we've given up to truth, right? We said, well, God's word really isn't full of truth, it's full of errors, and so on and so forth. So you have to gird your mind in truth. It's going to be very important when it comes to the shield of faith that we're going to talk about today. Then he said the breastplate of righteousness. Remember, we are, we are made righteous in Christ positionally. We are already righteous before God. Practically, we begin to live that out. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and verse 7 says that we are to train ourselves to be godly. So what we have become in Christ, we have to now take that and begin living it out on a day-by-day basis. And then we are, our feet are fitted with the gospel of peace which speaks of your will, the part of you that makes decisions. So here we are talking about strongholds that Satan has erected in your mind. This is platform from which he operates in your life, and that platform is built upon lies, that mental fortress, that results in what? Self-condemnation, self-loathing, all those thoughts that roll around your mind day in and day out are 90% of them are negative, because that's just the way we gravitate in our minds. And the result in our emotional makeup is fear, worry, anxiety, anxiousness. And so in the midst of this, God says, I want you to stand firm and hold your ground. How am I going to do that? Well, you replace the lies with truth. That's the belt of truth. And you do not stand before God condemned. You stand before God righteous. You remind yourself you're righteous in Christ. All of your sins, past, present, and future, have already been dealt with at Calvary. And therefore, your emotions now, you don't have to live with fear, worry, and anxiety. He says that he can give you a peace that surpasses all human understanding that will guard your heart, mind, in Christ. That regardless of what's going on around me, I can have God's peace within me. So these are three pieces of the armor that we are always to have on. And so when we looked at this, he says, having put on, having done everything, and this belt of truth, this breastplate of righteousness, this feet fitted with the the readiness of the gospel of peace. And so um, then he says, he makes a transition. Then he says, now I want you to take up. I want you to take up the shield of faith. I want you to take up this helmet of salvation and take up the sword of the spirit. And so these are things that we take up as needed. It's like a baseball player, right? When they go out on the field, they're wearing a uniform, but they take up a glove or they take up a bat depending on what it is they're about to do. They're going out and playing, you know, playing on the field or they're up to bat. So they're constantly in their uniform, just like we are constantly are, you know, we are girded with, we are, we've put on this belt of truth, the bless, breastplate of righteousness, and um, our feet shotted, you know, just fitted with the, the gospel of peace. All of those are firmly in place. Now these other three pieces we're going to take up as we engage in spiritual war. That makes sense? All right, so these are the things you, you want to have an understanding of. 
So before we talk about the shield of faith, I want to just very quickly give you five specific times in your life that you can expect spiritual attack against you, right? These are five specific times, and you're wondering, and I'll talk about some of my own experiences because they can be quite bizarre at times, and when Satan comes against you in attack mode. So here's the first one is when you are taking significant steps of faith towards spiritual growth, you are setting yourself up for spiritual attack. When you are, you know, you begin to get into God's word and you start memorizing scripture and you start giving generously because you want to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus and and you're serving in your church or serving in another ministry, guess what? You are ripe for attack. Why? Because your enemy wants to scare you back into mediocrity and ineffectiveness. When you start having an, an, an impact upon this kingdom of Satan, I mean, the kingdom of darkness, and you, you, you know, you're, you're seeing people saved, and you're seeing people's lives change. He doesn't, take, he doesn't just sit back and watch that happen. He wants to do everything in your life he can to keep you from growing, to put you back into just like, oh, you know, it's just as good as it's going to get, and this is the way I'm going to be. I remember the very first time I ever preached. You know, I, I felt called to ministry out of the secular market, and my, Dr. Crawford was my pastor, and he says, listen, I want you to preach on a Wednesday night. And I was scared to death, and I was preparing a message. And of all things, I'm preparing a message on, on Satan and, and um, temptation. And so I'll never forget the night I was, I was one night I was preparing that. All of a sudden, there was this, there was this deep, dark heaviness that just kind of infiltrated into the room and like this black shadow that I saw coming towards me. And, and so there's like fear like just rose up within me. And, and I, I remember like just breaking out in a sweat and just kind of laying. We had a very small efficiency apartment when I was in college and just kind of um, when we were before college, but we had a little uh, apartment and, and just kind of laying across the bed and just like almost in, in, uh, like a night terror if you have ever had one of those in your sleep. And so I, I wasn't going to stop. You know, I, I, I got through that, and I finished, you know, preparing the message. I, I delivered the message. But have you ever been just like in a, in a time of prayer, just a sweet time with the Lord, and, and then all of a sudden, like, just a vulgar word comes up in your mind or a hateful thought or, or something like, you know, like, where in the world did that come from? See, this is one of the ways that Satan attacks us because he wants to keep us from growing in our faith. So do not think that this is unusual because it is not. It is very much a part of his design and his strategy. Number two, when you are invading enemy territory— when you are sharing your faith, when you're willing to step out and go on a mission trip, uh, or you're reaching out to people in your community through your church, that is a threat to our enemy. And so Satan's desire is to magnify his harassment and obscure the blessings of being involved in fruitful ministry. So if you are invading his territory, he wants you to think that it's not worth it. For example, one of the most powerful ways you invade Satan's territory that he cannot do one thing against it is prayer. 
Jesus taught us over and over again the power of prayer. And when I'm praying, listen, there's nothing he can do to stop those prayers. And yet the Bible says that it's our prayers that releases the power of God from heaven down to earth. He can't stop that. But what he can do is say something to you. You know what? You've been praying a long time. It's not doing any good. God's not doing anything. This is so ineffective, such a waste of time. Why don't you just stop that? And millions of Americans do. Have a prayer meeting in your church and see how many people show up. Which again, I attribute to the decline of the American church. It used to be we corporately got together and we prayed and we, 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 we would come to the altar and we would bear our burdens and we would cry and we would weep not only for our lives and for our churches and for our communities and for our country. You don't see that much anymore in churches. In fact, it's pretty much null and void. And we wonder why we're heading the way that we are. I mean, just read through the book of Acts and you see every, this pattern. Every time, every time God moves, Satan counter moves. Every time Paul brought the gospel into a new city, there was a counter move against him. The Jewish leaders would rise up and they would beat him, stone him, and cast rumors about him. And Satan would rise up and raise up you know, local businesses and, and culture and bringing hardship as much as they could. And if that, couldn't, if that wouldn't stop Paul, then here's what the next step Satan did, is that when the church was formulated and established in those new cities, he simply worked through dissension and deception, infiltrating into the church and the church leaders, which is why you got many of the letters, the epistles of Paul in the New Testament writing and he's addressing these issues that are happening in the local church. Number three, when you are exposing the enemy for who he really is, like every time I preach a series like this, I'm telling you, hell breaks loose. In fact, it's one of the reasons I don't like to do it. I'm 11 weeks into this. I'm a, I, I can't begin to tell you the kind of spiritual warfare and oppression I've been fighting for the last 11 weeks, and it can spill over into a lot of different things because when you start exposing Satan for who he is and you hang his laundry out for everyone to view so that you can begin to walk in the victory of Jesus Christ in your life day in and day out, he does not like that one iota. He'd rather me just preach on God's love and now everybody just love Jesus and everything will be all right and he doesn't want you to know that you're in a war much less how to fight the war in order to win the victory, the victory that Jesus has already leveraged on your behalf. Number four is when you are attempting to make a break from world, the world or sin or some type of addiction or coping mechanism, you are open for spiritual attack. Now, this is extremely important because here's what happens to most people. Like when they say, you know what, I, I realize that Jesus is real, and, and, and let's say they get saved and they've got this addiction, they want to break free from the addiction, and they really put their mind and their heart into that, allowing Jesus to leverage everything in his power to help them break that addiction. And here's what happens is they think that when they start taking those steps of, of freedom that life is just going to get so much better, but to their um, surprise, things start getting worse. And then they're wondering, like, what the heck is going on? I thought if I walked in obedience to Jesus and I really wanted to get set free, he'd just make it easy for me, and, and it would just be like smooth sailing. What is going on, Pastor? I don't understand this. Well, I'll tell you what's going on. He wants to discourage you week in and week out so that you will stop taking those steps of obedience that's ultimately going to, live to your, lead to your freedom. 
And they share stories about job losses, conflict with a close friend, marital conflict, I mean, being robbed, being ostracized by unsympathetic friends, and it just, the battle just goes on and on. Here's the last one. God is preparing you personally or the church corporately for a great work for his glory, you can expect spiritual attack. Spiritual opposition is often one of those things that lets you know that God's up to something in your life or in the life of your church or in the life of maybe a ministry that you're involved in. And it appears to us as a random attack, but citizens of the unseen world know clearly that this is not an, you know, just a random attack. It is very much a dynamic strategy of the evil one that is rolling out against you. They're just not out of the blue. Someone has said this, spiritual opposition is always a good sign. It means that we are worthy of the attention of the kingdom of darkness. You got no spiritual attack happening in your life, it's probably because you're running parallel with the kingdom of darkness. You start pushing back against the kingdom of darkness, I guarantee you, Satan will start pushing back against you. So when we come to this fourth piece of the uh, of the um, armor. Notice what it says in verse um, 14. It said, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And so the first pre- first three pieces of the armor help you to stand firm. They're more defensive. Now we're coming into the objective, the shield of faith. What is that? Well, again, Paul's chained to a Roman soldier. He's looking at his apparel every day. And so the Roman soldiers had two shields that they used. There was a small circular shield that oftentimes was strapped to their arm that was used for hand-to-hand combat. So if you've ever seen movies about gladiators, you'll oftentimes see them have this shield. Or if you like Captain America, right, kind of like a shield like that. They're not hurling it this way. But in hand-to-hand combat, they can use it so that their arm's not struck by another soldier's sword. That's not the shield that Paul's referring to here. The one he's referring to is the second shield that the Roman soldiers used. And this shield was two and a half feet wide, four feet long. It's like carrying a door. Like for me, it's like I can hide behind this thing and nobody knows I'm there, right? Lovely. So this was a a shield that they would use to advance an attack. In other words, you don't go into hand-to-hand combat trying to hold a door while you're fighting. So what they would do is they would link these shields together that formulated a wall and all the rest of the army is behind this wall as they're marching forward against their enemy on the offense pushing their enemies back. At some point, they would have to release those shields and engage in hand-to-hand combat, which is what we're going to get to when we get to picking up the sword of the Spirit. At this point, we have the shield, right? So we are behind the shield. We're moving forward into the enemy's territory with this shield. This is the shield that Paul is referring to in this passage. And so about this shield is that it is able to, he says, to extinguish the fiery arrows that Satan is hurling against you. So for the Roman soldiers, these shields oftentimes were um, made of wood, covered in leather and metal. 
because the enemies would take their, their uh, arrows, they would dip it in tar, light them on fire, and when it hit a, a shield, that tar would splatter, and so would the fire. And so they would soak those shields in water so that when, and make the metal so that it's not like one solid piece of metal, but it has like gaps. So when that arrow hit that, it would hit into the, the leather that's been soaked in water and would very quickly extinguish that arrow and keep from the, you know, the splattering of the fire you know, going all over the place and, and on the soldiers and catching them on fire. So here's what is, uh, Paul is talking about here is that he is saying, listen, the shield of the faith is not the sum total of your Christian beliefs. In other words, it's not what you believe doctrinally and all those things. That's all about the belt of truth. This shield of faith this, this faith, concept of faith, has everything to do with taking God's truth and putting it into practice. Like, you can sit down and read your Bible from now till Jesus comes back, but if you never step out in faith and trust God's promises, trust God's character, and are willing to put your, your faith to your feet and actually move out in trusting God to do what only he can do, then you will never have true faith. That's what it means. It's taking God at his word. And it's like, it's, it's as though God has said it, therefore it is so. And so he says, the way that we fight in these mental fortresses, remember, it's in your mind, emotions, and your will, is that we have to take truth, stand it up against the lies that we have believed all of our lives, and say, you know what, God? What you say is truth. I'm going to believe that truth. I'm going to stand on that truth. I'm going to march forward on that truth. I will not back down from that truth. I don't care what's going on around me. I am going to trust the truth because I trust in your unchanging character and your ability to rule and reign over all things. That's what Paul is talking about. Let's pick up that shield of faith. So how does faith operate as a shield in our lives? Number one is this. The shield of faith is trust beyond the visible. Trusting beyond the visible. The challenge with faith is that we, we often talk about you know, being full of faith or stepping out in faith or I'm growing in faith. And it's amazing how people... They tend to, to, to build their faith around their emotions. Like, you know, one day you get up and you're just all pumped up and you're all on fire for Jesus. And man, uh, my faith is soaring today. And then the next day you get up and you're so depressed you can't hardly get out of bed. And like, my, my, my faith is just plummeted. I got no faith. Right? This is not the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here. It's not a faith that's built on your emotions. Because your emo well, listen, if you build faith on your emotions, you have no confidence. Because you're up one day, you're down the next, you're all over the map emotionally. This has nothing to do with your emotions. It has everything to do with trusting God and what he has said. And say, uh, some people say, well, I just don't have any faith. And, you know, I, I, I need more faith. And we think that, um, you know, Faith is something that I conjure up. You know, we just pray that God would give me more faith. Just pray that a, you know, a bucket of faith would be dumped on top of me. Listen, faith is putting truth into action. It's putting your full weight and trust in that truth. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, you know, my grand, I, okay, so I grew up with four sisters. I had two daughters, and I have a granddaughter. And I can't tell you how many times I've been invited to tea, high noon tea. 
All right, so, you know, usually you, when you show up for tea, um, they've got this little table, these little chairs, and as an adult, you're, you're really afraid to put your full weight down into that chair because it's going to collapse, right? So you kind of like, you do the kind of one of these things, and you're going through tea, but now your thighs are burning about 15 minutes into this because you're trying to hold yourself up, not putting the full weight of your body into that chair because you don't trust it to hold you up. So what Paul is saying, listen, if, if we're going to put our faith into action, we have to put the full weight down on that chair of God's Word and trust it no matter what what it looks like around us. Because much of the warfare, remember what happens in the invisible spiritual realm is being played out on the physical realm and, and, and day in and day out in our lives. And so God says, trust me in this. But as you're trying to trust God, it's like, but God, I don't see anything happening. I don't see anything changing. I don't, think, I don't see anything that is different. Lord, how long do I have to keep trusting? He says, until you get your full weight down in that chair. Because this is what faith must do. Faith, and I put this on your outline, faith is acting as if God is actually telling the truth. He's actually telling you the truth. Another way of saying it is faith is acting as if something is so, even though you can't see that it has been so already. Faith is directly tied to an action done in response to his revealed truth. And I can't tell you how many people over the years of my pastoring, people say something like, well, you know, pastor, um, if I just had a little bit more faith, I, I, think, I think what I'm, I'm asking God for and what I'm trusting God for what would happen, I think the reason it hasn't happened is because I don't have enough faith yet, so just pray that I have a little more faith, and then I believe it's going to happen. And then, and then they will quote me. One of the most misquoted passages, I think, in the New Testament, I call among the greatest hits of misquoted passages, out of Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20, which says, if you just have the faith of a tiny mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the ocean, and man, there it goes. Let me give you the context of that verse. See, we often pull verses out of context. Uh, so what they're saying in essence is, you know, my faith obviously is lacking because Jesus said, if even I had faith of a tiny mustard seed, I could say that mountain, I'm going to cast you into the sea, and it would be gone. So Jesus had just experienced his transfiguration, and the disciples kind of got in on that, at least three of them. And they were like mesmerized about this whole transfiguration process. Well, right after that, you know, they're all pumped up, the, the three that were there, Peter, James, and John. I mean, they're all fired up about that because they wanted to build tents there and say, Lord, can we just stay here and just like stay in this moment for the rest of our lives? And God says, he said, no. Uh, so now they come down, and they're with the other disciples. And so a man brings his son who is demon-possessed, and they, he asks the disciples to cast the demon out of him. He, they can't do it. And so then Jesus shows up. And says, listen, your disciples couldn't get this done. They're trying to figure out why they couldn't do it. And so Jesus casts the demon out of this man's son, and he's fully healed. And so they inquire of Jesus, Lord, why could we not do that? And in his response, he says, oh, oh, you have little faith. Um, if, you, if you had the, the faith of a tiny mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be gone, and, and it would be gone. That's the context of the verse. Now, here's probably what you don't know. G Why does Jesus mention a mountain and a mustard seed? Well, when Jesus is making this teaching, he is standing before the mountain 
and there is a fortress in that mountain called Herodian. Herod the Great, who died a few years after Jesus' birth, um, he was a great builder. He built 11 fortresses during his, his lifetime, but he was also quite paranoid. You know, he thought his wife was going to overthrow his kingdom, so he had her killed. And then he thought his kids were, and he had them killed. And, and so, um, but Herod was, was a builder of fortresses. And so what they literally did with this mountain is it's almost like an ice cream scoop. They just kind of like scooped out the top of it and built this fortress right in the top of that mountain. Like it was secluded from, the, from your eye. And so um, that's, this is where they're standing. And then Jesus pulls in this tiny mustard seed when they're standing in front of this, this, uh, this mountain. And why doesn't he say if you have faith like, you know, a piece of dirt or a grain of sand? And so this seed is even tinier than that. But here's what this seed, if you planted that seed, it would produce a bush that would, could be 20 feet in height. So let's put these two together and, and kind of discern what Jesus is saying here. He is saying, in essence, um, he's showing them this mountain Herodium, and he's saying to them, do you see the height and the power that money and innovation can create? He says, the smallest type of faith can topple all that. Just the tiniest of faith. Now, here's what I want you to see. Faith is not the power source. God is the power source. Faith is nothing more, it's no more effective than the object of your faith. If God's the object of your faith and you're putting the full weight of your trust in him, regardless of what you see around you, that faith has the ability to topple a mountain, to destroy a fortress that it took human power years to construct. God can flatten it in a second, and he can do the same for you. He can do the same for you in your life regardless of what your situation is, regardless of what is happening around you, and the only way your faith grows is when you actually step out and trust God for what God only God can do. Sitting at home reading your Bible about the faith of other people is a wonderful thing, but it'll never grow your faith until you actually get out there and put it into practice in your own personal life. Otherwise, it just remains null and void. Faith doesn't grow when you are idle. It only grows when you're actively trusting God in your life, and it doesn't matter what area of your life that might be. And so as you act on God's truth... You say, I want my faith to grow, then here's what you need to grow. You need to grow your understanding, the belt of truth, in God's promises, in God's program, and what God has said, and then simply trust God to do what he said he will do, period. That's taking up the shield of faith. Here's the second one, is that the shield of faith is protection in response, protection in response to obedience. If you were to look up Hebrews chapter 11, which we commonly refer to as the faith chapter, here's kind of how it starts off. It says, by faith, Abel offered. By faith, Noah prepared. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Isaac blessed. By faith, Rahab welcomed. What do all of these things, these people have in common? They had a word from God. And it wasn't a complete word, 
They had to issue some trust in that word. They couldn't see the outcome before they actually stepped forward in faith. But once they took that first step, then God began to unfold his plan and purpose, and God began to supply them with everything that they needed to accomplish what God was asking them to do. You have to take the first step. We want God to say to us in our devotional time, uh, you know, Lord, I'm really, uh, I'm experiencing this area of my life, and I really need some faith and trust, and God, I'm trying to trust you for this, Lord. If, if you could just show me how it's all going to work out, if you could just show me and guarantee me this is the way it's going to work out, and we usually have our, already have our plan, and we're just informing God about our plan, wanting him to work our plan, right? So if we're honest with ourselves, that's the way we usually approach it. And God's saying, no, 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 here's what my word says. Now, are you willing to trust my word? And are you willing to trust to, to the degree that you're putting your full weight of your trust? You're taking the first step, the second step. I'll keep you going from there. You just keep moving forward. That's what these people did. So here's what I, I put on your outline in just one sentence is faith is a function of the mind that actually shows up in your feet. You're moving forward in faith. You're walking in faith. And when you're walking in faith and you're trusting God in greater and greater ways, guess what happens? Your faith begins to grow. Your confidence in God grows. Your trust in his ability grows. Everything grows. When God called me into ministry and says, okay, I want you to go in full-time ministry and I'm quitting my job. We got nowhere to live. We got nowhere to go to school. I didn't even know if I could get in college. And so, you know, and I got to trust God. And God just said, trust me. Just trust me. Just trust me. My dad's trying to talk me out of it. And, you know, we're having some, you know, conflict and just going back and forth and Satan's trying to, you know, his strategy is, no, 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 don't do this. And doubt's flooding my mind and my heart. And I don't know. And I, you know, I didn't really want to go to college and I, really, I didn't know if I could do college. And, and so all these doubts are rolling around inside of my head, but God just keeps saying, trust me, trust me, trust me. So eventually, guess what? Your feet have to move you forward. You have to trust him. All right, go apply for college. All right. I applied for college. I'll never forget the day that my acceptance letter came into my mailbox before I even opened it up. I knew in my heart of heart, God says, I'm telling you, you're in. I, I opened up and I found out I was in. I was like, I can't believe this. Have they, did they mess up my high school transcripts with somebody else? I mean, did they get it confused? So, I, you know, I get in. And so now I, I remember the first day of school, I was so, so nervous. And I'm in these classes. I'm with kids half my age. And, you know, we're like, oh, man, it's just like, can I do this? Can I do this? And, and one of my classes was Greek for all, of all things. I hadn't even mastered English. How was I going to do Greek? And so, um, yeah. So it's just one of those things that God just said, trust me, keep moving forward. Trust me, keep moving forward. And that's what it is we are called to do is to trust God and just keep moving forward. And we, when we allow our faith, again, to be defined by our feelings, we just get confused. Stop allowing your feelings to take over and move with the truth of God's word as he has given it to you. This is important about faith. You need to understand. Faith is not passive. Faith is active. It's stepping out. It's moving forward. Uh, here's what I wrote in my devotional. This is not on your outline, but it's a good thought. Here's why, as I was thinking about Christianity, the American church, the condition of the American church is, here's what I wrote. For many, the Christian faith is a label you have attached to yourself, but not the life that you're actually living. Christianity is just a label that you have attached to yourself, but it's not really the life you're actually 
living because God says, without faith, you can't even please me. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to move forward. So um, Paul talks about this internal battle in Romans chapter 7 and verses 21 through 23, and I would have time to read that because i got some other passages I want you to see. But here, here was the strategy. Paul says, man, you know, I want to I, I have faith in God. I want to trust him, and I'm trying to move forward, and i got this war going on inside of me, and there's a battle that's going on in my head and my heart. Listen, this is... This is the way this Christian life is. Why? Because you're trying to grow and you're trying to move forward into the enemy's territory and you're trying to help people find Jesus. Listen, you're always going to be engaging in spiritual warfare when you're doing those things for the kingdom of God. You can count on it. And when you're trying to get your life together and your act together and you're trying to move forward in the image of Christ and you want to display Jesus to the world around you through your thoughts and through your actions and through your speech and through your behavior, I'm telling you the enemy's going to attack you. He's going to come with a what? Condemnation. Remember, you're no, you're no good. You're, 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 a, you know, you're just a waste of time. You're a piece of dirt. I mean, he'll come at you with whatever he can. He'll find every weakness that you have. He will exploit that weakness because he wants to stop you dead in your tracks. Paul, the great apostle Paul, who spread the gospel like none other, starting churches, says, my entire ministry, I had to fight this battle. It's going to be there. But here's the strategy. When you get hit with enough arrows, because here's, here's Satan's main objective, is to keep you from coming to Jesus as Savior, right? You've already done that. Then the second objective is, well, I'll just, keep, I'll just keep you ineffective for Jesus. I'll just keep you mediocre, sitting in a pew week after week, not really doing anything for the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, if I, can, if I can do that, if that doesn't work, then here's, here's what he does. Paul says, he says, he'll take every flaming arrow he has and he's going to target right at you and he's going to unleash them all. And so, um, man, you're trying to do the right thing, but God does this. Here's what happens when that happens is oftentimes we blame God for the very things that Satan is seeking to do in our hearts. And we say, God, you must not love me very much. All this stuff is happening to me, and all this stuff is coming against me. God, don't you care? Don't you, don't you listen, listen, listen. I've been in ministry long enough to know there's a lot of stuff that comes at you when you're engaging in the gospel. So let me give you an example, and then we'll hit the last one. Joseph. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Joseph, God gave him a dream. And said, this is your future. This is what I want to do through you. And, of course, Joseph's brothers, they're all, you know, all wigged out about it because he says they're going to bow down before him. And he's already dad's favorite and had a special coat. And so, you know, they throw him in a pit. They want to kill him. But his oldest brother said, no, we can't do that. So they sell him off into a caravan. And he gets carted off to Egypt. And then he gets in Potiphar's wife. And then he's accused of rape by his wife. And he gets thrown in prison. He spends years in prison. And so finally, you know, he meets a couple guys in prison. They have, one of them has access to the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh has a dream he can't interpret. Oh, I remember a guy in prison who knows how to do that. So Joseph is then put uh, in Pharaoh's presence. He interprets the dream. And the dream was about there's going to be seven years of severe famine and seven years of plenty. So we better stock up the grain during the seven years of planting, uh, plentifulness in order to prepare for the seven years of famine. And so the Pharaoh was so taken back by that he said, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to put you second in command. Now watch this. At the end of Jacob's life, 
his father, because remember, now, his brothers and father eventually had to come to Egypt because famine had hit the land. They had nothing to eat. They come, and so Joseph looks like an Egyptian. His brothers don't even recognize him. But in the end, he reveals himself to his brothers, and before Jacob dies, he gathers his sons together, and he issues what is known as the blessing. He paints for them a future based on who they are and, and all this, and when he, when he comes to Jacob... And it's time for him to issue the blessing over Jacob. I want you to go to Genesis chapter uh, 49 and listen, look very carefully to what Jacob says to Joseph as to why he is second in command over all of Egypt. Even though Satan had blasted him with fiery dart after fiery dart after fiery dart, sold into slavery, in prison, seemingly no hope for the future, it says in chapter 49, verse 22, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attack him. They shot at him with hostility. Who do you think's behind all this? Satan is, right? He's attacking Joseph because God has given him a dream as to what God's going to accomplish through his life. And so he attacks him, though he uses human beings to do that. But his bow remained steady, his strong arms stayed limber because of the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because the shepherd, the rock of Israel. And so all those years, Satan is firing arrows at him. He says, you're alive. You continue to trust God, and as a result, you move forward in faith regardless of what is happening around you, and God raised you up to the place he wanted you to be. And so when finally Jacob dies and his brothers think that he's going to kill him, and they come into his presence, he says, oh, no, 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 what you meant for my harm, God meant for the saving of Israel. Don't ever forget that. You don't know what God is doing in your life as the enemy is coming against you if you just keep trusting him and moving forward in spite of what the enemy is throwing at you. Here's the last one. The shield of faith is God's presence in tough times. Now, go to Psalm 3. Now, we all probably remember King David, right? King David was, uh, I mean, God just greatly blessed his life in many ways, but in other ways, um, David's life was a wreck. And one of that is that he was a great, great king. He was a man after God's own heart, all of those things. But uh, King David was a lousy father. And so anytime there was happenings going on in the family, he just kind of disengaged himself from his kids and kind of just let, let it play out, which was a huge, huge mistake. And so his son Absalom decided he's going to overthrow David's throne. And so David has to flee from Jerusalem. And Absalom not only overtakes his throne, but he takes his, his concubines and all of them, and he's sleeping with everybody that David had at his disposal in order to just like shove it in the face of his father. And during his fleeing from Absalom, Psalm 3 is, was written and by David. And listen to what it says in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying to me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and you lift up my 
head. What David remembers that God was what? A shield, not just any shield, but the God of Israel is his shield who protected him through all of those things. Remember, when Roman soldiers marched forward, they interlocked their shields. They're combining the forces together as a wall moving forward. Listen, as a Christian, hear me well, as a Christian, listen, David didn't flee alone. He brought soldiers with him. As a Christian, when the enemy is coming against you, sometimes the attack is so fierce and so brutal, you cannot withstand it on your own. You need to interlock yourself with other believers, and God will bring them to your side as you're moving in the same direction in order to push back the enemy who is against you, and then God supernaturally becomes a shield around you to protect your heart and your mind. This is what David is talking about here. This is what God wants to do for you. When Jesus was baptized, remember, when he came up out of the water, remember the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove came down. The Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There's the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Spirit then takes Jesus out into the wilderness, and there he is tempted by the evil one, and guess what? Father, Son, Holy Spirit has linked them together. God became a shield around him, and he simply took the truth of God's word in order to defeat his enemy who wanted to disqualify him to be the Savior of the world. You're not alone. So I leave you with one last example. There was a time when the king of Syria came against the king of Israel and every time the king of Syria came against the king of Israel, the king of Israel knew about the king of Syria's plans. And he gathered all the soldiers together and he says, I'm going to find out which one of you is the snitch. And one of the soldiers spoke up and says, oh, no, 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 there's no one here who is defying you, king. There is a prophet in Israel who even, he even knows what you whisper to your wife in your own bedchambers. His name was Elisha. And so the king sent his armies to Elisha. And Elisha's servant comes out of the door and he opens up the door and hears the armies of Syria coming down, descending upon the household of Elisha. And he yells for Elisha and Elisha comes out and the servant is like petrified that they're going to be mowed down, they're going to be strung up on a pole, they're going to be decapitated, whatever the army of Syria wants to do to them. And then Elisha says, oh, my son, do not worry. And so he prays a prayer that God would enable this servant to see beyond the visible realm into the spiritual realm. And God granted the prayer, and that young servant saw the armies of God surrounding that house. Please understand, as a kingdom citizen, as a child of God, you have angelic beings who are the army of God who are also fighting on your behalf. They have surrounded you. They are your shield. You need to understand and tap into mentally and emotionally and in your will that, listen, I am not ever fighting alone. God and his armies are fighting with me. So my last fill in the blank is this. Listen, faith is the point of access, not the source of power. Faith simply accesses God. He's the object of your faith. And if he is the object of your faith, you have no reason why you cannot live your life 
hand-to-hand combat with your enemy and win. Stop looking for more faith. Faith is only as valuable as the object of that faith. When the object of that faith is God's revealed truth, even the tiniest amount, Jesus said, can move mountains. So trust God beyond what is visible. Live as though God is telling the truth and nothing but the truth. Allow your faith to be seen in what you do with your feet. Choose obedience over feelings and know that the presence of God is always with you, even in the toughest of times. It is in those moments that you draw from the grace of God and access his power to give you peace in the midst of the most difficult circumstances in your life. The armies of God have surrounded you. 